Boyos, sweet ladies of Albion, Her Majesty has sent me to bring some dark and sinister news. A horde threatens our great land from the south, and we are in dire times. We are divided. We are unaware of what is happening to us. In order to categorize this terrible situation to bring it to you, I, Constable Steph, have called it the IQ. And by that I mean the Irish question. You see, our supreme leader, Edward Dutton, and his uh, most sinister general, his most devious general, Jimmy the Boyo, were facing this problem long ago. And so their choice was to send the Irish down to Australia to rid our beautiful British Isles of their presence. But what happened is these Irish, these monsters, these orcs, though they may be monsters, they are genius. They went down to Australia and like savages, they, they, they found these boomers, these kangaroos, these monsters, and they tamed them. And they formed a, a new age centaur. They saddled them, they taught them to swim, and now they are rushing up in the ocean towards us. Our times are dire, my friends. We must organize ourselves and get ready to fight this great horde before they strike us down, before they arrive and drag us into the underworld, a dark age that will last for a thousand years. In order to do this, we look to our great leader, our spiritual leader, Gustav the Young. And he teaches us that in order for us to conquer such difficult problems, which are physical, political, financial, but most importantly, spiritual, we must learn a secret skill, a magic of the Swiss man. And that is to reason from first principles. So let's talk about first principles. After my last video, I got in a load of people and we were all working through various, like a myriad of problems and we, I noticed some common patterns coming up. And most importantly, and I guess the description of what I was doing is I was working with people, helping them dig down to the very roots of their issues so that they could uh, free themselves to think about it clearly and thus solve it. Now, what I was essentially doing, what I was facilitating was their ability to dive into the deep of their thoughts and find the first principles, the axioms, the the foundational ideas and allow them to play with them and whatnot. Now, when you were talking about this psychologically or say if we're talking about it with a skill like storytelling, um, in order for someone to do that, it can be slightly different than the more technical way it works. So I'm going to talk about the technical way first because, you know, everybody fucking loves that voice. First principles are uh, sort of a philosophical idea. Well, I guess you could call them axioms. The word you probably heard before is axioms, premise, um, starting point, these type of things. So there's usually premises like the foundation of a house that you build an argument on top of. Now, what's super interesting about these things is that you can build a really, really tall house, but if you attack a foundation, it's going to fall over because the house stands 
on the power of its foundation. And so what's more important usually, or what's more useful, I guess you could say what gets quicker results when you're dealing with faulty thinking patterns, when you're dealing with other people with faulty thinking patterns, but obviously most importantly with your own faulty thinking patterns, is um, you need to dive down to this place. Because what we tend to do is we tend to focus on the house because, you know, it's nice and tall and handsome and good looking. And of course, you, you put a lot of work into this house. You try and make all the, you know, you put on nice curtains. You try like rub the windows to make sure they look all shiny and all your neighbors are like, what a great fucking house. That guy really built a good house. But um, despite its like obvious magnificence, I'm not saying you're you're a bad at making houses. You're you're great at making houses. The foundations is what you need to dive down and wrestle with. And of course, human nature dictates that we would far rather deceive ourselves on this fact because it kind of hurts to do it. Then we would um, then we would actually do the I guess you could say irrational thing, or if you want to add a little bit of Jungian morality into it, the the humble thing, the thing where we bite our tongue a bit and dive down and, and question our own axioms, our own premises, our own assertions, and our own first principles. This is where you get the word principle from. It's the Latin word uh, principum. The word prince I imagine comes from it as well. It just simply means first. What comes first? So. We need to get good at finding these yokes. We need to get good at diving down and like wrestling with them a bit and being like, what's going on here? And um, this usually involves a psychological thing. So you've probably noticed, God knows what's been going on in your life. Perhaps it's you, perhaps it's someone else. But you've probably noticed that you can get in arguments with people um, about any topic and it will very quickly move from being a discussion that's sort of unemotional like say if you're talking about something like politics you'd imagine it should be a rational discussion it's like well here's the evidence and here's the opposing evidence and um, let's try figure out reality here but that's not what happens at all you say well here's what i think and then the other person says you're a demon from the depths of hell and then you say well you're the worst you're 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 actually the demon i'm actually i'm from heaven i'm i'm the one in possession of the righteous gospel of god and you're actually you're the demon they're like well no because you're the demon (laughs) and usually this is just an absolute nonsense um, it's it's just ridiculous. Like it's it's just an absolute waste of time. Like I I get into these, I fall into these the whole time, and I'm sure I get I get triggered as well. And it, this stuff is all unconscious, so it's very hard to know when you're getting involved in it because someone can start talking to you about something, and you can hear something that like triggers you, and then you can just kind of go off, and it's like you get possessed or something like that. It's very profound and strange. I don't really know what to make of it at all. But um, nonetheless, like you fall victim to these things and you get carried on with these axioms and you end up fighting over this stuff, but never really discussing anything of worth. It becomes a massive waste of time. And I've definitely felt that like a, a huge part of maturing, I find, is 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 part of a part of your soul just like gives up on having pointless arguments and you just say, OK, right. I'm just going to let them win. <laughs> like it's, a, I'm going to be the bigger man and I'm just going to let them win. I'm going to walk away. And you do that because you're like, all right, I just, there's no point in this. Like if I sit here and I argue and get my point across, I'm, I'm not sure it's going to, I'm not really sure it's going to radically change the world. Like there is that experience when you talk to someone and you actually drill home a brilliant point like maybe perhaps even a new axiom you present them with and they might even accept it and then like two days later they'll come back to you and be like well no wait a second (laughs) no (laughs) they've forgotten it or something like that and you're just like okay right 
right, these these people they don't respond to reason. Um, I guess you could call that phenomenon of uh, the inability to move people away from their axioms, the inability for argument to work, is what people often call cognitive dissonance. And I'd imagine the reason that's like that is, I, I I'm not sure. Perhaps the reason why that is like that is because evolutionarily it's it's better for you to be part of the collective you know it's better for you to be part of the group and it's better for you to share the group's axioms and be loyal to them and so your brain has sort of learned to ignore your bullshit little reasoning mind or like even ignore evidence it's 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 trained itself to block that stuff out and just stay true to the the principles that have worked in the past and the principles that your tribe ascribes to because like you know say if you say if you were uh, running around a religious society and you you brought out a incorrect ac- axiom and you, you started talking about it they would turn to you and be like you're a heretic and then they burn you at the stake and that's the end of your genetic line so perhaps we've been we've been evolutionarily adapted to towards obeying axioms towards ignoring truth that's a scary thought like that is a very frightening thought because the enlightenment presents us with this idea that we are honest seekers of the truth and if we all just seek truth things will go well and our nature is sort of empty and what happens is the world deludes us the worse no society deludes us by trying to socially condition us trying to mind control us our society puts in a lot of axioms that fuck our heads up and all we need to do is like reason our way through those and then we'll free ourselves and so what will happen is if we take away all the tyranny of the state and all the tyranny of the church and all that what will happen is uh, our reason will will be free to just do its job and then it will it, we will figure all this stuff out and instantly we'll be like these angels that we were once i don't know that we ideally were or something like that like it will just happen everything will go well people will stop arguing like idiots and uh things will fix but of, of course and I guess that's the whole idea of salvation through reason. But of course, that's not what happens. We've had a couple of hundred years to do that. No, hasn't happened at all. And um, someone like Jung would point closer to the idea that our, our reason is, is kind of useless in the face of these, this underworld, this, this, this drive, this unconscious grip that this seems to have on us, this... Um, this this nature we have like stuff like cognitive dissonance dominates reason dominates dominates our ability to be to 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 be to do the right thing and and, and respond to evidence for example and that's a scary thing because that means there's something wrong with human nature where it doesn't necessarily want truth now what's interesting is that if you want to talk about self-development if you want to talk about becoming a, a better boy or you want to become, talk, become juicier you want to evolve yourself you have to ask yourself in some sense all right well what i'm going to do is i'm going to pursue truth i'm going to try expose myself to myself and what that means is that you're going to have to go against your nature you're going to have to commit sin against your I guess you could say your emotional world, your your inner world. You're going to have to try attack your deep-held axioms. And what's interesting is that these axioms that your cognitive dissonance was protecting you from, it does this using emotion. It makes you afraid of being wrong. It makes you hate being wrong. It makes you hate that. 
you know that's the feeling you get like when you're in an argument you can catch yourself sometimes where you, you'll stop arguing because you want to be right or you want to tell the truth you'll definitely you'll just you'll fucking throw that out the door the second someone gets a says something in any way snarky and then it'll become about putting the other person down and like not admitting stuff reframing it being slippery like little shit and all that and um, that's all driven by emotion it's like a, an anger it's like a, a small fire that, that captures you or something like that and so obviously like our emotions our instincts have worked with us to do this and so the moral thing to do and this is sort of the Jungian idea of morality is uh, we've got to enact humility on ourselves we've got to we've got to say to our anger you are wrong and I, I I throw you aside you know we've got we've got to I guess you could say invoke the Christian ideal of not responding to uh, like all this these nonsense gods these polytheistic monsters around us and we have to say I'm going to stay steadfast for the truth get behind me Satan that type of thing and that would be the, those basic instincts coming in to invade your mind and fuck with your head a little bit and uh, yes take over the process and so let's let's talk about how this works and how we break into it and how we can actually do that i guess you could say hero's journey within to find first principles and see what type of value they can bring now the main driver of first principles thinking or we can say the antithesis to first principles thinking that is i guess you could say unconscious thinking if we want to frame it that way the if you even want to call it this way you could perhaps say it as rational thinking i know people like that or or truthful thinking or non-self-deceptive thinking actually focusing on what matters actually revealing stuff to yourself the antithesis to that is to go along with the tribe so everybody talks about individualism oh individualism so brilliant i love it that's what everybody should be freedom all these type of things i'm all for that that stuff's great and all that and it's like it is until it actually comes down to you having to do it well i know i know what's going on you're like i like saying these words because they sound cool because they're actually an axiom that was put in your head by someone else and you don't understand it but this is you like saying this stuff you're like yeah individualism it's all badass and all that but when it comes down to being an individual that means to you know think for yourself no 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 don't ever just, oh Steph no way don't don't what you put that back in your mouth now you get that back out of there I don't want to go thinking for myself now that's hard <laughs> that hurts <laughs> so um the, the the opposite thing is to go along with the tribe to uh people call it social conditioning do what others do a man a rene girard girard that's me trying to imitate to go along with the french tribe right there and um, rene calls this mimetic desire I, I i guess this would be similar i could be getting this a tad bit wrong but it is that idea of um meme mimetic meme and copying what other do other people do because you see other people do it you imitate them so we're like trapped in this tribe and you know someone comes like you know the big strong uh, guy who's getting all the deer who's killing all the deer he seems to like wear this very interesting feathered hat that he, he got one day when he killed uh, an owl he's putting this feathered hat on and then he's, he walks in he's like swaggering in like Conor McGregor like he's like killed 12 deer today I was like, and then people start saying I wonder is it his hat 
Andres his hat and then everybody starts putting the hat on and then everybody goes out and they're like well eventually it becomes like why the fuck aren't you wearing your hat we're going hunting don't don't be giving us bad luck there you little shit and then maybe the first principle you know you might get the guy who'll turn around and be like uh, okay look listen I kind of I'm thinking about this I'm just thinking I'm racking my brain in this tribe racking my brain here and I'm kind of thinking maybe maybe we don't need the hats because like what matters is killing the animal you know like you know bow technique collective organization like the goal is to kill the animal therefore everything that doesn't directly bring us towards that goal that's sort of a you know it's unnecessary superstitio as the Romans would say and they're like shut the fuck up get him and then they'd like I don't know strip you and uh whip you and then like cook you and then not not eat you that day and not eat the the deer till the next day or something like that and so yes we sort of um collectively go with the tribe it's very very common we do this with everything and gerard calls this mimetic desire we want what other people have it's very very simple idea you know it you know it's true so an example of this i want to give lots of examples because they're just so funny um one of them, for example, is rap music. Now, I make rap music, but I've actually always felt a little bit weird about the word rap because I got to color that skin. You know what I mean? Like, it's not really, it's not really my thing. It's not really my my tradition and all that. Now, it becomes worse when I'm not even a Yank. I'm not even an American. Like, so doing something like rap, that's an American thing. And so when people, you know, I listen to Dr. Dre, Eminem when I'm younger, like, oh, this stuff's so good. And then I'm like, all right, I'm going to try that. I'm going to give that a go. Dr. Dre and Eminem walk in with the big feathered hat, which is rap music. And I do it, and I'm like, man, yo, what's up, bro? I'm a kill, yeah, uh. And I, I put on this American accent, despite the fact that I'm Irish. And you, you saw this in the Irish um, hip-hop scene when it was starting out. Like, as you always do, it's probably all over the world. First of all, rap music itself is this mimetic desire thing. Second, like, it's the fashion, it's the trend. And then second of all, when it starts moving out of America, people start to develop the American accent. And I've even noticed, like, I've picked up some American words. Like, I would say bro sometimes. I would say man a lot. I would say, like, I, I would just, I, I Americanized a little bit because I consume so much American media. It's very common how you pick that up. And it's kind of frustrating in some sense because it feels like you're losing your identity to whatever's going on there. You're you're changing into this, this I don't know, new global anglo sphere character like it's got its own like sort of americanized speak it's because america is the hegemony or something like that and yeah like we're all uh, interacting with that the whole time and rap music is one of the staples of that and so you see how it starts to change the world around here you notice that people dress different like people would wear like baseball caps and stuff like that and like it's not it's not like ireland ireland would have flat flat caps but my god baseball caps are just out of this world and then you see a couple of people in the in the city doing it you're like what what's going on around here um so what is that consequence of is that consequence yes of of collective culture now there's something very interesting i noticed is that in order for me to do it i actually went through struggles with this as i was describing it's like i'm european i'm irish I'm not american i'm not a yank what, the, what can i do be like oh man what's up bro like I, and even worse like you, you're it's like i'm white i'm not black like what am i doing here eminem went through something similar for example and um, I had to reframe it in my head. I had to dig down into my mind to be like, what am I doing here? I'm, I'm trying to rap. And that was always something nearly foreign to me. And I had to dig down into it and think to myself, okay, wait a second, wait a second. Wait, you know, what's going on here? Okay, look, I'm not rapping. 
although I am. But foundationally, what I'm doing is I'm trying to get my message out because like I, I love I love communicating. Like that's really what I'm good at. That's what I am, like letting the voice, letting the word carry. And so rapping is like this vehicle for me to do that and actually more fundamental than rapping. And I sing sometimes and I, I talk and I like telling stories. More fundamental than that is this sort of unified identity underneath it. And that would be a poet, you know. A poet is this like first principle or this axiom I can move from. And that was actually really useful for my heart, for my psychology to free myself. Why? Because once that clicked with me, I was like, well, that's what I'm actually doing. I'm trying to reach people here. I'm not trying to rap. I'm trying to reach people. Rap is a, a method of doing that. And um, once that happened for me, I realized, well, the Irish have a famous tradition of being the best poets, far better than anything that came out of England. <laughs> the, James Joyce once said that his his goal with writing his novels was to defeat England finally by making the best book in the English language come from an Irishman. And Ulysses is often considered the best book of the 20th century. So I don't know. Take a bow. Take a bow, England. We finally did it. We finally took you over. <laughs> Um, but you see what I'm saying? It's like, oh, the, that, that first principle changes to me and I can have a different emotion about it. And I guess like maybe it's kind of delusional still, but it's enough to free me to go do the thing I want to do. You know, it's enough to free me to be like, just put a fucking rap song and shut the fuck up, man. Like stop being a little whiny little bitch and just go do it. And it allows you to own it a lot more. So I guess what I'm trying to show here is that like first principles, you can listen to someone like Elon Musk and he will discuss, like people ask him, how are you so innovative how do you come up with so many original ideas and he there's like look up videos of him he will say i think via first principles most people think via analogies most people say batteries cost two thousand dollars so we're not going to be able to build an electric car because batteries are too expensive and then elon will be like hmm well let's do first principles how do you make batteries and it'll be like um, well, if you can source, you know, the lithium and you can source this piece of equipment and this and this and this, you can actually, if you can source that yourself, you can actually make a battery for like a quarter of the price, a fifth the price. And so he's like, all right, I'm going to start making batteries. It's so cheap that it's actually worthwhile to make batteries. First principles thinking. He did the same with rockets. Like apparently he was on a, a space flight. He was on a, he was on an airplane and he just bought a book on rockets and he studied it to try to figure out how do you make rockets. And by the time he had, by the time he got off the flight, apparently this is just this is a story I've heard. This is like the Elon's version of the feathered hat. He had um, through first principles figured out how the rocket works, and then he had this working plan for how he could do it like far cheaper. And that obviously turned into SpaceX. So it goes to show like it works in the in the engineering sphere. It gets you innovation. Now, I guess what I'm trying to present here is how you can work in the psychological sphere, in the realm of the soul, in the realm of the heart. So, yes, I have to reframe it as poetry psychologically to allow myself to do the thing that matters. Because the first principle, I guess, that matters is that I just want to put out stuff, first of all, so I can reach people. And it has to just be good. It has to move people. That doesn't, that, that means I'm, I can't necessarily, I don't have to restrict myself to, you know, I have to do it the way an Irish person would do it. I have to do it the way a white person would do it. It allows me, it frees me to just go for it. You know, and that, that is very, very useful. And I guess what I'm trying to say is watch for stuff. You have stuff like that inside you. I still have plenty of stuff like that. You could call these limiting beliefs, if you will. You probably heard that in the self-help world. Limiting beliefs. Oh, I can't do that because of this. 
that's bullshit. Why? Why can't you do that? That's a crazy excuse you put in your head. That's a crazy premise or axiom you've got there. And what's worse is it's holding you back. It's stopping you from behaving in a certain way. And you have those. Um, and then here's another one in, re- in regards to the poets. So think about this. If you grow up from a culture like Ireland where you love poetry, you will think to yourself, okay, well, what I've got to do is I've got to write. I've got to be a poet. So you'll focus all the time on writing. You'll like write, 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 write. You're like, this is how poets work because this is how poets always worked. You'll analogize. You'll be like, this is how poets always did it. You'll look to the tribe. You'll be like, ah, oh, that's, what, that's what poets did. But then if you dig into the first principle of what a poet is, a poet is someone who moves people with words. That doesn't sound like it has to be a writing, done in writing. And actually, if you think to the tribe, Homer never wrote down any of his works. The ancient druids, those poets, they weren't even poets. They were lawgivers and poets. They usually sung what they were doing. This is interesting now. So writing is not essential to what these ancient poets are doing. Why is it essential to the modern poet? Why can't a poet... Why does a poet need to restrict himself to writing? Why can't he take advantage of YouTube and speak? Why can't he take advantage of slam poetry? Why does he need to box himself in? Well, there is no reason. The reason is analogy. It's failure to question axioms. And you can see how that would hold a poet back. Say if he focused on writing. Do you know many people who read poetry nowadays? compared to the amount of people who would listen to someone speak it or perform it? Unbelievable difference. And this doesn't invalidate writing, but it just goes to show you, you've probably got to think this stuff true. And no matter what endeavor you're doing, you've, you've got to look at it in this sense. It's like, am I, am I being the, 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 the stubborn poet? Am I focusing on writing when I could be doing this in a far more efficient way or a far more up-to-date way, a far more adapt way to the world I'm in? You know, and in order to do that, you're going to have to ask yourself some hard questions. And what's weird is that the poet will have his identity tied to writing. He will restrict it purposefully. He will say, no, it has to be this way. I I refuse to allow it to be any other way. It has to be this way because that's what I am. I'm a poet. And it's like, well, okay, cool. You might also be a failure. You want to take both of those? So yes, psychological first principles, personal axioms, all this stuff. So what I'm trying to get at here is that these things, these drive us, you see how much they influence our decisions. You know, you have this identity of a, of a, you know, a poet. How much is all your choices going to revolve around that axiom, that, that first principle, that premise? I have to do it via writing this specific way. I've already decided how it has to work. As I was trying to say in my last one, it's like, all right, easy there now, easy there. You don't you don't get to decide how success works. You need to adapt to the world. And so we have these psychological things that we grip onto, our, our psychological axioms, our psychological first principles. But what we need to do is we need to fix those. Now, the process of fixing those, I can tell it to you. You know, you've probably heard all this before. I can say to you, question your first principles to stop being a bigot, become an individual, make it happen, you know? And you'll be like... 
this guy, this guy knows what's up. You know what? I'm going to I'm going to be like that from now on. And tomorrow you get in a stupid argument about politics or something like that, because you're just not going to get better at it unless you consistently do it, you know, and even then you'll probably still make the mistake a lot. So I guess this is a this is this is teaching you how to think in the more strict, abstract technique orientated way like people be like i'm dumb or maybe they think they're dumb and fuck it maybe you are but I'm, i guarantee there's plenty of super high iq people who don't have these techniques and so know how to really elaborately defend something that's retarded because they can't question axioms in fact maybe if you have a lower iq but you're more brave you're better at dealing with your psychology like the eq thing even though that could be nonsense if you're better at challenging your own axioms because you've got better technique because you've got that combination of being able to face scary thoughts or face your own anger and overcome it with emotion and with humility and all that if you have these virtues perhaps even though your iq is lower you'll be able to figure out these more basic things better and actually have better a better grip of reality than some genius IQ person who's scared of challenging their own emotions. Imagine that. And, you know, that's that's a pretty intense reframe, but I, in my experience, I think that could be true. But that's just an assertion. So let, I'll let someone else do the science on that. And um, there's a hypothesis you can test. But think about that. Because that sort of frees this idea of the determinism of things like being dumb or being stupid. Yes, of course, there's like IQ factors into it. And I'd imagine if you have a high IQ and you do this stuff, you're just going to take over the world. Like, I imagine that's the perfect place you want to be. But if you don't, there's still hope. It's, it's a technique thing. Thinking is technique. There's a technique to thinking. And Nietzsche, Nietzsche backs this up. Nietzsche says, you know, if you want to take a student, you need to teach them how to observe which is sort of what we're talking about here now, how to take your emotions out of things and focus and look and not not prejudge. You need to learn how to think then. You need to teach them how to think. That's how to judge then afterwards. So first they have to see the world, then they can judge it. And then after you need to teach them how to write and speak. So that's present what you found. And um, yeah, it doesn't matter like how smart you are. If you can't do these things correctly with the correct technique, Perhaps you're actually contributing to the mishmash of delusion. That is the, uh, you could say, the intellectual world right now, which that, that it seems. And we'll get to that in a moment. So, yes, in order to do this, you're doing, it's a, it's a hero's journey. You're going down into the deep. You're diving into the unconscious, you know, your personal unconscious. And you're, you're swimming. You're, so you're looking at your shadow. It's all these things make sense here. You're staring out at that big black ocean, which is the things you don't want to look at. You know, you're being comfortable up on your little boat, your ego with all your arguments, with all your knowledge, with all your triumph. You're standing on top of the boat. And you're saying, I am so great. Look at me up here. This perfectly clear sky. But then there's like monsters down underneath that are actually, you know, clasping onto you, swirling up the waters and they risk toppling the boat over because you're too stubborn and all that. So what you need to do is you need to do the crazy thing. The thing that you know will get you killed. You need to jump into the water, take a harpoon with you, jump into the water and go fight the monsters go figure out what's going on with the monsters you dive into the unconscious into the waters into your own bullshit the stuff you're hiding from yourself and you look for the big beasts and what are the big beasts well the big beasts are your emotions you know your axioms are 
incredibly charged this is why people don't go near them because they're they they're literally like these little nuclear balls of energy they're dragons they're whales they're sharks whatever you want to call them so every time you get close you feel danger you're scared something's going to go wrong don't challenge this thing you know when i think about being a poet i'm like oh i have to do it via writing and then i go say to myself well what if i don't and then it's like no never say that because then you're you're a failure. Then you're not a real poet. Then you're you're a stupid poet. You're a, <laughs> you're not a good one. You're a fake poet or something like that. And the the beast starts shouting at me. And then you'll you'll start to see the beast is screaming at you. You'll be a fake poet. Why will there be a fake poet? Because your dad said he admired the that poet, and you want to you want validation from your dad. And then suddenly the harpoon comes out, and you stab the monster, and be like, that's that's what's going on. I want validation from my dad. I don't want to be a poet. I want, to get, I want to get accepted by someone who didn't accept me. And so it's this type of thing. It's this type of diving in and asking these really weird and interesting questions. And it's weird the way your head works and all that. You dive into these oceans. You uh, meet these dragons, these big emotionally charged beasts. They might even swallow you. The whale might gobble you up. And you might end up inside the whale where you're wrestling with its digestive system. You're digesting the emotion that you never you never dealt with before you're going through it you're like this is so crazy i'm this is ah, uh, this hurts i like i never thought challenging but it's so mind-blowing at the same time and then suddenly you're down in the belly of this big whale and you see a treasure chest you run over and you open it and it's oh my god this is the new perspective i finally i've digested the whale has digested me i don't know who's digesting who here but i found the treasure chest i've opened it up i understand now I see things in a new way. I see things clearly. And then you, you finally take out your harpoon and you, you cut the whale in half. The whale dies. The emotion is over. The tension is over. And you take all that gold. Somehow you're still able to swim and float despite the fact that you're carrying a lot of gold. But who I don't know how myths work. <laughs> and you float back up to the top and you get back into your raft. Suddenly everything's clear again and you can actually sail. You see land of all things. Wow, it works so perfectly. <laughs> that's how things work there you go i just gave it to you i gave it to you in full that's that's how your mind works above the oracle in delphi famously there was the quip from apollo which said know thyself now there is a corollary to this well, that is, you know, good advice, but there is also this sense that if you know yourself, you will know others. I always like to use the analogy that I heard Conor McGregor speak about once. Conor McGregor got, like, you know, he got beat up a few times when he was younger. As all kids, they get, they get in rough and tumbles and all this stuff. And uh, that inspired him to go fighting. And I remember hearing him, and I'm paraphrasing him right here, so, you know, take it easy. But um, he was saying something along the lines of he got intimidated. And he learned from that experience, from looking into how his intimidation affected him. He realized that, okay, this is what causes me to feel afraid. This is what, this is what caused me to let the bully get into my head and he said he used that self-reflection that conceptualization of okay that type of behavior scares me that type of behavior intimidates me if i mimic that behavior i'll be able to intimidate others because i am human and i have a nature and i have a set of uh, emotional characteristics and so everybody i'm fighting against is a human as well so i hope and so it will allow me to understand how to trigger that part of them how to like fight the animal within them how to scare them how to intimidate them and um that's that's a fascinating thing because i remember when connor was coming up that was one aspect of him that people really really were attracted to was the fact that he had this 
very, very it seemed like he had a very, very mercurial understanding of psychology. He seemed like he was a very much a thinking man. You could tell that he seemed very, very smart. He seemed very, very perceptive. And it seemed like he it started with his own self-reflection, which then he projected on others. And this is where this skill starts to become extremely interesting. Not only do you, are you able to dive into yourself and conquer your inner demons, but then you can begin to see how people have demons outside. And this is where we start talking about something like empathy. I guess the root of empathy is literally to imagine other people are the same as you because that's something we almost make a mistake is we have this like we have our set of axioms we have our way of seeing the world it's very very it's even hard for me like i can talk about this but to actually do it is just like a whole other level and it's something like i constantly am working on but it has it is that situation where you have like what you want you have your understanding of how politics works of how reality works of what is right and wrong and you have especially important is you have what you want in that moment and then when you're meeting someone else you don't really like the kind of first instinct is to kind of like ignore the fact that you don't really treat them as a person it's very weird instead you sort of just come at them and you're you're like driving towards what you want and you're sort of suggesting that they should fall into what you want and all this and you, there's no there's no conception and you know every, your way of seeing reality is like the true way of seeing and and they're sort of the outsider and all this and and there's this I guess you could say there's this failure to understand that you're dealing with someone who has an, an entire world in and of themselves. And this is regardless of like other people being right or wrong, but it's just an interesting thing about human nature is that we are solipsistic. We are very much stuck in our own heads and that's just the default way we, we run ourselves. So the reason why this is interesting is because once you start to look into yourself and make this leap say okay wait a second i'm the same as them you will start to understand okay they have axioms and i know now that i've i've looked at my axioms my first principles that my god do are they emotionally charged and my god they might even be incorrect god imagine that like not all my axioms were right and then i looked when i looked at them i was like a lot of it was bullshit that's that's astounding you realize other people are the same and you develop, I guess you could say, empathy. This is where you start to imagine another person's reality. And this is quite a cold version of empathy because this could be the marketer's empathy, where the marketer studies the person in order to push their buttons and make cash off them. Where the, the fighter, like Conor McGregor, the, this is the empathy of the predator in some sense. It's, it's neutral. It's not, it's not loving. It's not like compassion like suffering with, or maybe it is, but it's it's more to do with like, you know, the mirror neurons getting triggered or the imagination visualizing how someone else works so that you can either exploit it or, 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 or just simply understand it. It can be used for good or evil. It's like the force. Luke, it's like the force. Don't go to the dark side, Luke. Use the power for good, Luke. I'm telling you, this is this is my message here, Luke. I know, I know what's going on. I'm using my empathy right now, and I can see, I can see your little hands, Luke. I can see your little hands. I know what you're thinking, but no, it, it's about understanding. It's a neutral force, and use it for good, Luke. Use it for good. But it is that ability, like the predator, to visualize what the gazelle is doing and thinking, okay, is that gazelle? Does that gazelle notice me? Is that gazelle afraid? Is that gazelle feeling sick today? Is that gazelle feeling sad today? Maybe I should go for him. Maybe that gazelle looks, the way he's carrying himself looks like he'll give up quick. He looks like he's a bit down about life. 
that's the gazelle I'm going to go for. Scary shit, man. And yes, this disability to develop empathy will help you to understand how people tick. And it's founded on yourself. And this will give a huge amount of benefits to, I guess, what humans do the most, which is fucking argue. Like, I don't know why we call ourselves angels, but the thing that we tend to do the most is bicker and talk crap. Like, go on Twitter and just lose your faith in humanity. Just be like, why am I? No. Like, look, we, we made a mistake about a 10,000 years ago with civilization. Let's, I'm, we're out of here. Let's turn it off. Delete it all. We're done. Back to nature. <laughs> and, uh, the, the the reason why arguments are so bad and horrible, like I hate getting in them. I just find them pointless, a waste of time. Sometimes they can turn into fantastic conversations, but that's far closer to the idea of um, conversing. And it's usually it's usually with someone who is who's actually developed quite a lot of the skills I'm talking about here. But um, the the worst thing about arguing arguing is it's it's a bickering thing. And what's worst about it is I think the reason why it's so bad is because people will come into an argument who both have different axioms, different first principles, different worldviews, and they have no empathy, and also they don't have the technique skill where they can focus on axioms. They can focus on each other's axioms and talk about that stuff, which is where they truly disagree, and which is also where they're truly emotional, and therefore, if they're able to put their emotions aside and play the game a bit, like talk about axioms, then they can actually truly have a fantastic conversation, and I'll show you what I think that will go like in in a second. But no, instead, they stay, you know, they have the foundation of the house, they stay up in the upper levels of the house, and they bicker. They're like, oh, that window's shit, or you're evil, <laughs> your house is evil, <laughs> and my house is, is glorious. And then the other person's like, no, your house is evil, don't you understand? It becomes nonsense, it's a waste of time. Um, people are incredibly incompetent about this, and it's so, so ridiculous, because people are very, very... Um, in the, the the less people understand this axiomatic thinking and this empathy, the more people tend to be um, assertive. They tend to be entitled. The more people tend to be uh, kind of bullheaded and stubborn about this. Because when you start to really punch holes or really look into your psychology and realize how vulnerable you are to faulty axioms, you actually develop a little bit of doubt. That is um, the worst when it comes to rhetoric, which is the ability to persuade, where you need to just sound unbelievably confident and sure about everything you do. Um, And you can see now perhaps why our nature doesn't necessarily want us to do this process of self-discovery, because it, uh, shall we say, it weakens our confidence, and that's not necessarily good for survival. And uh, this this is where... We have a bit of an issue with the idea of democracy because the premise of democracy is that we all get together. The enlightenment premise is that society is making us, is deluding us, is is, is fucking us up. Society fills our head full of nonsense. And if we could just change the tyranny of society, get rid of those superstructures, our, our, our glorious rational nature would come out. But people like Jung, people like Freud, like they, they, like they blow, they, they, they shoot at the axiom of this. They shoot at that idea of our nature would come out rational. And they say, why do you think our nature is rational? Nietzsche did this as well. And they're obviously proven, proven right. Like they, they absolutely floored that argument a hundred years ago and people still haven't caught up people, because people don't want to change that axiom. People want to believe the best thing about themselves. Jung is coming in. Freud's coming in. Nietzsche's coming in. They're being like, your nature is crazy and you're not even in control. And it's definitely not rational, brother. It's definitely not rational. 
And so this is it. Like when, when we do something like democracy, we expect everybody to be rational people. People refuse to take the responsibility that it requires to be rational, to be perceptive, to be empathetic, to be all these higher values. Good conversation where people are discussing axioms without getting triggered by the charge they feel when they're talking about their axioms. They're like one in a million probably. And that's because it requires a great amount of individuation. What I'm trying to talk about here, it requires you to do all this. It requires you more than just to kind of, you know, be like, oh, interesting idea. It requires you to do it. And this isn't going to end up on CNN, hopefully. <laughs> like, it's, it, that's not going to happen because most people won't, don't want to do it. Most people will do anything to avoid facing themselves, to avoid uncomfortable emotions. And some of the most uncomfortable, the most uncomfortable emotion I have ever felt is that being wrong. <laughs> you know those people who are really, like I'm sort of one of them, but you know those people who are really like opinionated. They, I, I think that like they're, they fear being wrong more than death. It's it's unbelievable. There's It's like you can prove them wrong and they'll sort of sheepishly like look down the floor and be like, yeah, all right, maybe, yeah, whatever. This is this is what we're fighting against here. When we we want to do something like democracy, we want to do something like truth and nobility and and uh, have you know a higher level of consciousness and all that. We're fighting against human nature, and human nature needs to be understood if we're going to do it. And um, yes, this is not. There's the the entitlement to your opinion is by no means a first principle. In by all means, I think the suggestion of human nature is that your opinion by default may be muddled up with a lot of these issues and so we have this big seriously difficult question of like how do we decide if someone has a right to speak if they haven't haven't crafted themselves into some type of truth and that's challenging like an axiom that is just so unbelievably so unbelievably sacred for us the axiom of, of everybody's right to have an opinion and these things become very 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 difficult and so if you want to contribute if you want to be the good person and solve this thing work on yourself to 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 at the very least know that you're not contributing to the issue and maybe then develop your empathy skills where you can start to show people how to do this as well and you can become this little rippling effect that hopefully saves democracy and saves us from whatever the fuck we're doing our nonsense that's going on <sighs> yes so true di true discussion yes true discussion requires axiomatic thinking and i want to give a couple of examples now these are not my opinions these are literally me just playing with opinions. I like to imagine dreams. I like to imagine a person and look at the dream they live in. And then I imagine another person and look at the dream they live in and find their axioms and see what they're arguing about. And um, I like to do that by... Yes, I, li I like to do that by... Yeah, like imagining that stuff. So I'll, I'll just get into it. You have the environmentalists. They're very prominent right now. And then you have the people who are worried about the West is going to collapse. You could call them, I'm, I'm not sure if conservative, yeah, I guess conservatives is, is a decent enough one, but I'm not necessarily sure that's what it is. But we'll have the people who are more about, you know, running the state and then the people who are more about saving us from mother nature and whatnot. And of course, people will get into these two arguments and they'll, they'll bicker or they'll, it'll be even worse. You'll see people on the streets now, they're fighting in subways over stuff like this. It's, it's, it's up here. And they're they're fighting, and it's us against them. It's and it's just bickering, and it's it's literally like it's nearly at a point of force where it's like you have to yield to our worldview, and then the other people are like, "I will not yield to your worldview. You have to yield to our worldview." 
And so we're at this point in the conversation where it's like blunt, almost animalistic. There's no, there's no, there's no way that this is going to resolve without force. And this is a very interesting problem is that memes, I guess, axioms, whatever you want to call them, these, these deep ideas can start in the intellectual world, you know, on, on the internet or even deeper in, in the religious world or something like that. And they can start possessing people. And usually they will just be like bickering and arguing at that point. But if people fail to do this noble process of, of critical thinking, of first principles thinking, of axiomatic thinking, of empathy, of confronting their psychology, if they fail to do that, these memes will start to gather more and more people and it will turn into, you could say, like groups, tribes, if you will. And then these tribes will st- will lose, they'll slowly lose the ability to to challenge their axioms, to get original thoughts, and they'll, they'll turn into mobs. And then at that point, the mobs are literally possessed by the meme. And what will happen is there's no solution then. The only way that the memes can decide which meme dies and which meme lives. So if they if you kill the meme back in the intellectual stage, it's it's a very good death because it's just it's just an idea that dies. That's thank God for that. That's not a big deal at all. That's just you know a thought. It's gone. Kill that. But now at this point where people are charged and it's now this this huge monstrous swell of emotion, like you can think of a thousand, a million dragons all swelling up together. Now these memes are going to fight each other. So it will start off as like yelling and it will be sub rational. It will be just be instinctive. It'll be us versus them. And then it will turn into fighting and physicality. We're actually at that point with this environmentalist thing, it seems. Um, But interestingly, and I like to go back and look at the dreams. This one I find fascinating because the environmentalists are proposing a moral crusade, as are the people who want to save the West. The people who want to save the West are saying, if the West goes, that's literally the best civilization we've ever had. That's gone. And all that, that's the platform w- which we use in order to do all good things in this world. So axiomatically, we're saying our fundamental moral crusade should be to save the West. Now, the environmentalists are coming in saying Mother Nature is literally the Earth is literally all we have. If the earth goes and we and we kill off life from our greed, from, you know, our Western capitalist system, if that goes it's over. No matter about your fucking West. What the, what are you gonna do when the like you're what you're gonna clean your room and fix your house and then the floods gonna come in and and just destroy your entire city? Like, come on, get, be realistic. There are priorities here, and the environment is a far higher priority because it's, it constitutes the entire world and the foundation of what we live upon. And so you see that these fundamental axioms are like a war between the notion of nature and civilization it's religious in some sense it's 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 like god or the goddess it's interesting it's at that level and what's so interesting about it so fascinating about it is that it's oppositional the axiom assumes the axioms assume that they're against each other god must take predominance over nature or nature must take predominance over god the, the civilization must take predominance over nature. Same wording. But there's no conception. And this is where, if you start studying these axioms, you can start asking extremely interesting questions, such as, why can't these two things be united? Why can't we frame it in such a sense for sort of a mutual compromise? Why can't we take the gods and imagine a story instead of them fighting? 
you know, like imagine if we were making myths about this right now, all the comic book artists would be drawn God fighting versus nature. And, and it's like representative of these movements. Why can't we think of something where they, I don't know, they become lovers or they, they mutually work together or something like that. Like, how would that look? Imagine if the people who were worried about the West would say, well, look, the foundation of the West was individualistic farmers from Scotland who decided, all right, well, individualism is what, well, what we are. And then they created that that premise and it was based on their ability to walk through these beautiful highlands of nature and all this. And they realized that the farming culture and food is the foundation for the stability of civilization. And if the environment goes, well, that's food is over. And on and these this first premise that held everything up is gone. Like the state isn't the cities. The state is made up by those quiet people in the countryside who keep things running while the people in the city go on Twitter and bicker. And that's kind of crossing wires because then the people who are sort of in this, in the uh, Save the West camp are like, oh God, well then there's, there is something about the environment that's interesting. That's an interesting, that, that's, that just reframes everything. It changes the conversation a bit. Then it's like, well, how can we compromise? How can we work towards this? And then they can sort of say, well, some of your demands, Mr. Environmentalist, is crazy, but other other parts of it are actually quite rational. Yeah, okay, right. It's not black and white. It's not me versus you. You have you have a point. The environmentalist could do the same. They could say to themselves, okay, wait a second. Without higher institutions which function on truth and justice, without the without that, this this crusade is never going to happen if if we if the west falls and it becomes like soviet russia where it's or if it becomes like some type of tyranny of some sort that's the end of any hope for doing something that's good or higher it becomes all about corruption and tyranny and maybe you think it's corrupt as it is now but then that's in our best interest to make it better and perhaps not even to go in and try push the environment thing because if it's corrupt now what the corrupt people will be doing is thinking to themselves like i was saying earlier like evil predatory marketers they'll be thinking to themselves how can i exploit this how can i exploit these people with their axioms how can i speak to their feelings and trick them like these evil marketers because they say it's these one percent capitalists well capitalism runs off genius marketing so why do you think these guys aren't smart enough to figure this interesting questions and these reframes then change the whole dynamic of the thing and it's very hard to do when you're stuck in the bittering when you're throwing scientific studies at each other and being like well this is this is true this is true you're wrong you're wrong you're wrong it's like is it really about wrong maybe there's different ways you can answer it and i don't i don't know if i have any answers but i'm all, all i'm trying to show you is perhaps a different way of thinking you know now veganism this is another example i want to talk about you're seeing this dichotomy right now between vegans and i guess you could say non-vegans they could be meat eaters or omnivores whatever you you wish this one fascinates me and i always bring it up because it's the same thing you get bickering you get some vegan guy on the street and he walks up and he he, he says to some randomers like why do you eat animals and they're like oh, i don't know because it tastes good it's like well fuck you like what why you what why that's horrible. Like, what, you just kill an animal because it tastes good? That's crazy. And, you know, they sort of have a point. And so you get this camp where you have these people saying, we shouldn't kill animals because it's horrible. And then you have these other people being like, hey, we've, already, we've always eaten animals. We've always eaten animals. That's what we've always done. So, like, why change? Like, look, it, it, it keeps me healthy. Like, what, what do you... Stop. Leave me alone. 
But then axiomatically underneath this conversation, there's a very, very interesting thing. The vegans are implying axiomatically that if something is sentient and conscious, then it deserves, it's wrong to cause it to suffer. You can think of it, even though most of them are atheists, you can think of it in a sort of sense of God will punish you for causing cruelty or suffering. It's rationally wrong to cause cruelty or suffering. But that all implies a first principle. It's like saving consciousness is good. Consciousness and non-suffering is good. And these are all, this is all, this is a very tough and religious axiom, but it is all quite consistent with the vegan stance. And what I've noticed is that when they, they're taking this axiom to its logical conclusion. And then when they're speaking to people who are meat eaters, a lot of these people, because this axiom is very, very famous. Nietzsche said Christianity taught this axiom to us. And now what happens is once Christianity falls, we're carrying this axiom forward without the religious architecture which we based it within. And so now most people you meet, even like, for example, a vegan might be talking to a conservative Christian, or it just might be simply an atheist who will actually agree with this axiom, but just wants to eat meat anyway. And I've noticed that the people who are against the vegans have the most cognitive dissonance around this. And this is because they, if you say to them, well, is it okay to hurt animals? And then you'll be like, well, yeah, like they're, they're animals, like they're, they're not the same as us. And it's like, well, what? So is, 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 is consciousness the way you rule that? What about someone who's autistic? What about someone who's, are you, are you in favor of eugenics? Like, is, is this how it works? If there's a, some type of spectrum, where do you draw the line? If you say it's consciousness, you can't just draw an arbitrary line because that means if someone has more consciousness than everyone else, they're more human, they're more valuable. You're, you're playing a difficult game there. And so I, I watch a lot of these and they're, they're, because the axiom is, they're holding it, these people tend to beat them. And then that's, that's an interesting side of it. That's a very interesting side of that debate. But then there's another way more difficult conception, a very Nietzschean conception. What if that axiom is wrong? If we look at nature, does nature give a crap how much you suffer? Nature is most certainly indifferent to the suffering of consciousness. And perhaps it's an appeal to nature argument. I'm not here to make arguments. I'm here to paint pictures, showing how these axioms can be played with. And if we look at nature as an authority of some sort, of of anything to go by, if we reason by that analogy, we can clearly see that nature is savage. And she rewards strength. And the idea that we have subtracted ourselves from nature, it's a big leap. And there's every reason to assume, in the Nietzschean sense, that perhaps the axiom that consciousness, me, my soul, matters above everything, could be wrong. Maybe, you know, the creator of nature, God, since he made it this way, maybe he doesn't really care about that so much. And if you're atheist, well, you you have even less of an excuse because you have to sort of appeal to something like evolution. Evolution works off death. That's how it works. It murders. It murders the weak and encourages the strong. It murders the fit, the unfit, and encourages those who fit in. It's an astounding idea. And if that axiom is wrong, doesn't the whole vegan thing sort of fall apart? And then perhaps you can present that, and the vegan's like, oh, fuck you, you evil bastard. But it's like, look, I'm playing with an axiom here. Like, could this be the case? I'm not, look, I'm not saying you're right, I'm wrong, and all this. It's like, let's have this conversation. I think this is a far better conversation, because it frames everything much better, and it's, it's religious in its depth. And if this falls, 
everything falls. And you'll notice that you can even present this argument to the other side. And they'll be like, no, no, that's evil, bro. Like, you get a Christian conservative, you'd say that to them. They're like, well, that's a bit of a, that's a, bit of a harsh way of looking at things now. I'm not sure I agree with that. And you know then, because of that, because it, it kind of plays with a lot of people's heads, that there's something interesting about it. But I'm just a boy. I'm I'm no I'm no wise man when it comes to this stuff. This is just to show you how these things have their their fundamentals, and they've got these. It's an interesting architecture, and if you can paint them, you can really communicate with people in an interesting way. You can speak in an interesting way. You know, like maybe if you wanted to reach compromise between the vegan and the 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 Christian conservative or whatever, you could say something like, "Okay, look, look, maybe maybe your axiom's wrong. Maybe killing animals." doesn't matter it's 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 just like killing people doesn't matter dark i know but maybe like we have to consider this maybe our responsibility as humans is not to go absolute all in on the axiom you're proposing save consciousness or something like that maybe we have to have a bit more of an attitude towards something like all right unnecessary cruelty you know maybe we can look at it in the sense that we're guardians of the earth and so in some sense things will have to be sacrificed towards our health but our responsibility, or we can even just look at it as like, there's no need to torture animals the way we do. And then you can turn around to the Christian conservatives or whatever, you know what I mean? Like the other people, the, the meat eaters, and you can say to them, look, go go, go up on YouTube and look at what happens to animals. And you'll see these pictures of people beating them before they kill them. You'll see these massive factory farms that are packed into these tiny cages and all this. And you can say to them, it's like, look at, that's like, is that really necessary? Is that really healthy? Do you think the animals packed into those cages sharing diseases, like pumped full of antibiotics, do you think that's you think that's a just way to orientate yourself? Could be something wrong with that. And so if they if these things aren't valuable, if they're not valuable, like at least at least you're valuable, maybe you could uh, take care of them a bit better. And it becomes this interesting play. And I wonder if you got good enough with these arguments and you're really invested in, you know, bringing these two sides together, getting, stopping these two, two sides from fighting each other. Maybe you could move them in some sense. Maybe you could learn to speak to each of them. Perhaps say to the vegans, perhaps your altruism is getting weaponized against you. Perhaps, perhaps your altruism is hurting you. You know, you, you want to be a good person. That's okay. That's, that's noble. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with wanting to be a good person and do the right thing. But what is the right thing? Maybe this is hurting you. Maybe you need to challenge your axioms a bit. And likewise, maybe you're on the opposite side. Maybe your ignorance of this serious issue is misleading you or leading you away from things that really, really matter. Maybe you're not being responsible. You think you're a good person, but you support this. And on the one hand, it it's probably making you unhealthy. And on the second hand, think of it this way, in concert with the other one, if, if this whole world is built on farmers, maybe the most of this animal torture is coming from these big factory farms and all these small little farmers that are just trying to make it by. Maybe they're getting crushed by the corporate world. So maybe, maybe there is an argument for that as well. Maybe we've got to start thinking of terms of compromises. Maybe we should start going to the butcher more, eating more locally or something like that. Who knows? And so you, you start to see, it starts to reveal itself as people live within these sort of collective dreams. And if you take a vegan 
any random vegan, they'll tend to be possessed by the same axiom. If you speak to most vegans, they'll tend to hold the axiom I just described, the compassion thing, very, very centrally. And so it's an almost in some sense, and they'll have a set of memes around that as well, like animals deserve, uh, deserve uh, equal rights as an axiom as well. And so you start to see this, this kind of collective dream that they all live within, a collective unconscious, if you will, a set of shared memes. Their mimetic desires all, all carry them together, like Jihad said. And then you'll you know get on the other side, the people who are worried about the West or the people who like eating meat or uh, the environmentalists. They'll all have their collective dreams and these root axioms. And so through studying one person, you can actually start to study a lot of people. If you can understand one vegan, you're getting an insight into many vegans at the same time. And if you can get, say, 10 vegans and develop this sort of meta-vegan out of it, you can start to really speak to a, a group mind, a god, if you will, that floats over them. So what do you do about that? That's giving you insight to an immense amount of power because that is puts you in the position of the marketer. The marketer wants to reach a thousand people. So they try to figure out what's shared among the thousand people. They tried this, they turned it into a, a meta person and that's sort of the God of that people, the God of that mind. And that's a fascinating idea because that is sort of the collective unconscious and it's built up on axioms usually. And the most resonant way to speak to that part of the collective, the collective unconscious is to prod at axioms, to really reach down and speak to these things. There, there's definitely a lot of power in that. And again, use the force for good, Luke. Now, the notion then is that you live in this dream and you have these shared memes and these are actually quite closely related to your no notion of taboos. Like if you, live, if you lived in a society full of vegans and you whipped out a steak, you'd probably be in trouble. You'd probably get burned at the steak. And that's because you're committing a heresy against the shared dream. And so that's that's an interesting question because does that mean that there's this sort of these axioms make up the foundation or you could even say the boundaries? So we're in this dream and we might spend all our time bickering about this like stuff in the middle, but these kind of axioms or these pillars that hold up this dream are actually the true frontiers of the dream. And you'll notice something like comedy is something that really plays on this a lot. And I guess since our emotions are regulated by these axioms, by these psychological axioms, generally everything somewhat good, somewhat innovative, creative, unique, funny, interesting, usually comes from people playing with these axioms. So the kind of weird challenge of human nature is that no matter what worldview, we, 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 we like to believe that we could all be rational, but another failing of collective human nature is that no matter what worldview we, we enter into, there's always going to be taboos of sorts. There's always going to be a boundary. We're not going to think everything. There's always going to be this boundary, and therefore there'll always be heretics. There'll always be people we're going to throw out. And in order to be a true free society, like you would have to be able to overcome that immense natural human need to hate these people who are taboos, who point in the, on the outside. To give you an example with comedy, comedy can be used for two things. Some type of comedians, I would call these the more interesting comedians, are able to find these taboos and play with them like the way i was trying to take environmentalism and the, the 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 fear of the west and reframe it to make this interesting sort of way of looking at both of them to play with the frame and that catches your interest because it, it almost seems unique and creative 
comedians I've noticed do something similar. They'll they'll find something that's extremely taboo and they'll they'll kind of play with it and flip it and get a, a new frame, a new way of looking at it. And this is precisely them doing their job well. But then there's another type I've noticed that plays on jihad's notion notion of uh, scapegoating. So scapegoating is where um, uh, like for example it's quite a, a common human behavior that he noticed throughout all of all of human history where you know everybody's in this little village and uh, the, you know some some guy uh, steals from someone else and then that kind of pisses off the the person who got it stolen from but they don't really bother like looking it up there they come out and they shout for a bit it's like who stole my chicken and then um and then no one answers and he just he gives up on it after a couple of hours and then the person who did it feels a little bit a little bit guilty and a little bit sneaky or something like that and then a thousand instances like like this go on and this big psychological charge builds up you know this big psychological charge builds up in the collective unconscious of the tribe and so what they do religiously what humans start to do religiously is they'll take figures usually animals sometimes people and what they'll do is they'll project all this psychological charge they'll, they'll almost like a magic spell they'll cast it on this the priest will come in and be like this chicken this chicken was possessed by a demon and ran away from him and so suddenly the chicken gets filled with negative energy all the guilt everything even though the, the, the poor chicken is innocent all the hate and our psychology gets projected on them it becomes taboo to such an extent that they they kill them so they take the chicken and they beat the shit out of it like this horrible death they stand in it, they squish it, they like cut its head off and they bleed it everywhere and, and then they, they all they let their rage out on the chicken and they get catharsis. They release the energy and it's, okay, stability, order is found again. And that stops people building up all this anger and projecting it on each other in an extremely negative way. So it's a way to sort of keep people docile. The scapegoat is the way for them to stop themselves confronting their bullshit. And so what Gerard noticed is someone like Jesus is so interesting because he he was the story of a a perfectly innocent man. Perfectly innocent. And he was like literally, literally a god. Like God was like, all right, here's here's literally an angel. Here's here's literally me. Here I am. I am God. I am your absolute perfect savior. And uh, I am perfect. Everything about me is perfect. And what you're going to do is you're going to scapegoat me. You're going to project all your anger on me and let's see what happens. And so he goes down, Jesus walks around, he's like literally, literally healing people. Like, oh, you want some fish? Here's some fish, bro. Oh, you want, you got, you got a demon? Demon gone. Oh, your daughter died? Daughter back to life. (laughs) And he walks around and everybody's like, fuck that guy. <laughs> I don't like that dude. I don't like that. He doesn't seem guilty enough. He doesn't know that we're, uh, he doesn't know that we're evil. And they just start building up all their, their collective resentment. It starts going on him. And it's like, kill that guy. Let's get that guy, kill him. And so the whole story is how they, they kill, <laughs> they kill the perfect human. They kill God. Like it's, <laughs> so yeah so that's it that's just shows our nature i'm laughing about this i'm gonna get in so much trouble for that but it's just it shows how our nature works we're so incapable of dealing with our psychology we're so incompetent unbelievably so and we're so arrogant that we assume we're good at it we're so bad at this that we would literally kill god instead of actually do the hard work of going introverted and so the 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 psychological sophistication of christianity people like young and jihad would say is its ability to shove it into people's heads that you have this problem where you scapegoat people 
where you do this bullshit, where you avoid confronting yourself and you project it, you shadow project on others. And if you wanted to, you could actually overcome this. And you can, you can make the world a very good place if you overcome this. And it becomes this great foundation for higher democratic um, society and whatnot. And so comedy works in the same sense. Comedy is actually, in its, neg its most negative sense, becomes this tool for scapegoating. The perfect example is Donald Trump over in America. Like all the comedians, they'll tell jokes and it's, it's nearly funny because how predictable it is. It's that Donald's going to be the butt of all the jokes. They'll be like, hey, I bought a pack of Cheetos today. And then you're like, it's coming, I know. Or it's like, oh, look, I got an orange. It's like, I know what's coming now. And it's, it's that type of thing of always on him projecting all the negativity all the negativity on him. And it's fascinating because what's that sort of doing is it's it's the scapegoat idea and it's creating this sense of us versus the bad people versus evil, you know? Us versus them. And that what that does is that preserves all the axioms. And this is a very, very interesting thing you can think about because you do it anyway. Like I, even on the on, on Donald's side, you'll see the, the, the criticisms of uh, the sort of socialist soy boy, you know? And it's the same thing as the environmentalists versus the conservatives. Like, surely, if we dug into the axioms of these two positions, but I'm not, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna open that can of worms. Perhaps you'd see some very interesting reframes. Like, you know, maybe, maybe the socialist soy boys are sort of right about uh, the fact that the student debt loans is a bit of a, a capitalist disaster, or maybe the, the it's, it's kind of, it's a bit ridiculous how, how much, uh, how much scapegoating uh, the magapedes and uh, Donald Trump to be getting over there. But hey, <laughs> but it makes you think, doesn't it? It's like, all right, well, there's socialist soy boys. Oh, it's oh, I <laughs> there's just always they're always the butter of the jokes. It's it's brilliant. It's always the other person. It's in a sort of meta way when you're looking down at it as some type of dis disembodied boyo. You're like, wow, humans are really interesting, aren't they? The way we scapegoat. The way we joke about all this stuff, the way the way we always project it in that sense, and it becomes us versus them, it becomes in group, in tribe versus the, the evil chicken. Who's the evil chicken this time? And these 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 archetypes they're consistent. That's what's fascinating about them. And it tells you quite a lot about the content you're paying attention to, because then I'm going to shove it, try to shove it back into your head as well. It's like you live in a collective dream. You're in a community of some sort. You're in a tribe of some sort. You believe one of these things. You're within a community that shares memes. And what you'll notice is that the vast majority of the content you consume in any community will be will be reinforcing all the axioms, but a lot of the content will be noise. Like, um, of, of, you could look at a vegan YouTuber and what they'll do is they'll do reaction videos to uh, another vegan or something like that, or uh, someone who dis doesn't like veganism. And it'll be the same fucking shit, you know? It'll be like, oh, well, wrong, 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 blah, blah, blah. You know, you're, you know you're gonna go into it and the person's definitely gonna disagree with this other person. And then they're gonna talk through all the reasons why they disagree. And what they're gonna keep doing is they're every now and again, every like, two minutes or so, they're going to reinforce the old axioms. So it makes you wonder how much of your content is absolute time-wasting. Because if you understand the axioms and you accept them and you've rationally taught them true, is there any need to really consume that much content? You know? Like if you study the gym, study gym if you study weightlifting or something like that and you realize progressive overload, um, correct movement patterns, good diet, consistency, 
So there's like four very, very consistent axioms. If you realize those, why do you need to watch like an hour worth of YouTube videos on the same topic every day for a year? Couldn't you just like forget about all that stuff, get rid of the noise and focus on obeying these first principles and you'd probably get more results because you just keep it simple and you just keep doing it. And so it makes you wonder, it's a good question to ask yourself, how much content am I watching that's absolute like waste of my time? How much content am I watching where it's just the comedian or the content producer who's scapegoating, who's uh, talking about the evil chicken and saying, all right, the, the, the chicken's still evil today. Would you believe that? Well, today I woke up and I found another example of the chicken being evil. And you're like, well, the ch I feel it. Thank God. Oh, I feel so good. I feel so happy. It's so funny. The chicken is evil. What an evil chicken. Yes, you, we're together. In, in the our quest, our crusade against the evil chicken. So you got to watch for that because this is a vulnerability in your psyche. And no matter what field you get in, you'll um, you'll join and you'll start, you know, repeating these like brainwash memes like boyo alert. <laughs> so, yes. Um, and then it makes it makes you ask the final and most powerful question, which is if this th thinking technique, first principles thinking is able to pull you down to axioms and allow you to avoid the noise. This is why it's valuable. Does that mean that it will allow you to reach successful conclusions faster and become a more effective person? And of course, the answer is yes. That's why I recommend you do it. So the full transformation goes from being arrogant, entitled and overconfident and stubborn about your opinion, but unenlightened, unaware of your flaws, your biases, to becoming woke, to becoming understanding the absolute shambles, which is your nature and the tripwires that surround it, that um, delude you and stop you from seeing the truth and how invalid your opinion can be, how much you would have lied beforehand and confidently so. And then if you work with this process for a long time, you will achieve the final state, which is where you start to gr gain certainty. You start to play with a lot of these axioms. You use these techniques that I'm talking about, and this is strictly a technique, and you play with a lot of these axioms. And then what will happen is slowly certain axioms will start to find them, to start to coagulate into solidity. And so you can be very sure, you'll test them in many different ways and you'll think about them like, wait a second, this one seems right. And you'll present it to people. You'll be very, very comfortable saying, what do you think about this idea? And people try to break it and they won't be able to. And you'll be like, well, okay, I think we have something here. I think we have something stable here. And what that does is that gives you something that you can build your house on. But this time it's solid. And because it's solid, you get confident. And suddenly now you've gone for having that stupid confidence which destroys democracy and is, is unuseful and destroys conversation and destroys all the good stuff. It's pernicious, is poisonous and usually leads you to have to argue from emotion and just be an annoying little shit to this stabilized, rock-solid confidence which is extremely powerful, extremely commanding and extremely reliable. You can usually assert these things with a very strong gut and be very, very persuasive for those reasons. So there's every reason why you should try to do this. The example is fighting. If you go out and you fight by your natural instincts, what you'll do is you'll, you'll blink when someone punches, you'll be like, oh, you'll lean, lean your head back 
lead your head back to the void and you'll stick your chin up to avoid getting your chin hit and you'll um you'll do helicopter arms Whoa, big punches i remember the first fight i got into that's what it was like it's just it's like a, a straw man coming helicopter that's that's what your natural instinct is like and you think i don't know you arrogantly assume that's good enough and you go you're like i'll fight you come on i'll fight you then you come up with someone who knows to keep the chin down stare forward punch straight you come up against that person the person who's trained you're, you're done you're done it's unbelievable your natural instincts are not something that you can rely on you need to work with them there's they're definitely noble they're definitely good like it, it's not that they're bad but they're not they're sloppy they're not perfect and there's this weird thing about being human where you have to both obey them and not get in the way of them but also kind of craft them and direct them like your desire to punch your energy to punch i guess the helicopter arm is the idea that you're 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 getting a lot of elastic swing and if you can learn to get that elastic swing in a straight line which is how you punch properly because you can some sometimes see people who are like too stiff if you learn how to get that from you know proper hip movement and all that you can take nature's natural instinct and power and take it to another level and be like a you know you see boxers and fighters where they can do these tiny little short movements and just floor people yeah especially with like inside hooks and all that stuff so it is this discussion of you need to work on yourself as they always say and the holy grail of what you're trying to cultivate is emotional intelligence the ability to understand your mind and therefore understand the minds of others and use this to many like the the, the vista of advantages that it brings persuasion charisma self-understanding feeling better about life communicating with people moving people it's just it's applicable everywhere it's a super skill it's a the skill that everybody is looking for you always hear them talk about emotional intelligence and i would i would necessarily call it a just a learned technique more than anything so the 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 way you sort of do it and is is as i'm describing you dive down into these axioms and what, what you have to do you have to imagine it like uh like you're harry potter or something like that you're diving down into this underworld into this deep and there's all these dragons there's these emotional tension points maybe that's a, a trauma or maybe it's just a firmly held belief of some sort or just the same with someone else and what you're doing is you're casting spells at them you're storytelling at them you're being like uh this this big unconscious shadow dragon which is whatever this thing is you just like actually have never even looked at it and you storytell it until you can see it clearly and then suddenly it releases a lot of its energy you can free yourself from it you can you can um you can release it like a, a muscle cramp or something like that. You're massaging until it goes away. You're casting spells at it. And it's the same with other people. You can like abracadabra and aim at these dragons and then move them. Maybe make them angry. Maybe make them happy. Maybe make them laugh. If you can do all this, you have great power. You're able to throw spells, walk around the room, throwing these spells all around the place. It's a fantastic skill to learn. But if you want to learn this skill, it is like all skill. It is like boxing. Boxing takes time. Boxing takes consistency. Boxing takes training. If you do your natural instincts, you'll you'll get all right, but you'll probably come up against someone who's trained who's going to do a lot better than you. And so it takes a long time of consistent effort to get this in. And a huge frustration when you're trying to work with people is their inconsistency. And that's usually from their lack of commitment to it. So what we were looking to do, us, us boyos over here, we're looking to find people who are like really committed 
to going for a long period of time, like the way you do training programs, like the way you go to the gym and you lift weights for a long period of time because you want to get a result. You realize you don't just go to the gym once and then you get a result. You want to take all this knowledge and embody it, put it into you, learn the skill, get the skill and make it a part of you and drill it over and over again and get better at it until it's an actual thing you have. So we're looking almost like a, a Hogwarts. We want to like see, get a select small group of people who are committed to go at this hard. And we just want to leave this option out here for anybody who would like to take it so if you're interested pop down into the comments or the description i'll leave the email the boyoiler at gmail.com and write down why you think you'd be a good candidate for this why you think would you like to join hogwarts and learn how to cast magic spells and if you're interested do that and i'll chat to you on the other side and regardless i'll see you later boys.